Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter, and this is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be going over chapter 13 of Polygamy in the Bible. We'll be on pages 128 to 142, and the title of this chapter is Solomon. The reader program is about 26 minutes long and then we'll get into the commentary portion of the program the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827 that's 917-889-8827 and we will uh do the commentary portion of the program after the reader portion is done. So, thank you for listening to the program. Here we go. Solomon, chapter 13 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 128 to 142. His name shall be Solomon, and will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build an home for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Akron 22, 9-10 When David died, he left an inheritance consisting of the most powerful kingdom in existence at that time. This was to be a patriarchal succession that seldom occurred in Israel the way that it should have. David's son, Solomon, inherited the throne of that kingdom. For the first time in Israel, its leadership had a successful example of passing of power from father to son. The reign of Solomon served to make actual and legitimate the covenant God made to David concerning the continuity of the house of David as a ruling power in Israel. The establishment of this principle of succession was to be the prime stable factor in Israel during the span of over three centuries. Zond Irvin's Encyclopedia of the Bible, 5, 478, 129, the scriptures say that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, 1 Kings 3, 3, 
and that he had made a thousand sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord. When Solomon went up to Gibeon to make sacrifices, the Lord appeared to him in a dream at night, and asked him what he would choose as a gift. Solomon told the Lord that since he was a king over this vast dominion of Israel and was still only a little child, he asked, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. The Lord was so pleased that he granted this request and dash and much more. He became the literary prodigy of the world of his day. His intellectual attainments were the wonder of the age. Kings came from the ends of the earth to hear him. He lectured on botany and zoology. He was a scientist, a political ruler, a businessman with vast enterprises, a poet, moralist, and preacher. Halley's Babelhound Book, P. 250, it seemed that the Lord blessed and prospered everything that Solomon did. He received everything that any man could ever want. His business enterprises extended to every nation. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs, and many other works, including three books of the Bible. Added to this, he constructed the most beautiful and elaborate temple ever built. Under his reign, Israel became the most powerful nation, and Jerusalem the most magnificent city, and the temple the most beautiful building. It was indeed the golden age of Israel's history. Among all these grand gifts and blessings, God gave Solomon many wives and children. 130. Since he asked God for wisdom, God blessed him with wisdom beyond that of any man. This great wisdom made him world-renowned for he was wiser than all men, and his fame was in all nations. In fact, there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth. A Kings 434 Even the famous Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon and came to prove him with hard questions, but he answered them easily. She told Solomon that she had heard of his acts and wisdom, but didn't believe it. After arriving, she said, Mine eyes have seen it, and, behold, the half was not told me, thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. 1 Kings 10, 7, Solomon was a stupendous builder. He had 70,000 men in his general workforce with another 80,000 who were stone cutters. These were all known as reliefs, but his building program developed so fast that he had to draft another 30,000 from among his own people. It took seven years to build the temple. Solomon was determined that only the best was good enough for God, so materials were brought from all over the world. By our present standards, the cost of the temple would have been billions of dollars. Building the temple was only part of that program. He built an elaborate palace comprised of four magnificent structures. Three fortress cities were built and also several smaller fortresses. Another expansive work was the wall that surrounded the cities. 
131, Solomon also had an army in which men served one month each year. See Crone. 27, 1-15, it was similar to the army that was organized under David. However, it included more chariots, horses and mules. Yet, with such an army, he enjoyed mostly peace during his reign. He gained territorial expansion with treaties and compensations, rather than military conquest. In so doing, he increased trade relations, resources, and a vast shipping enterprise. See 1 Kings 5, 1-12, 9-10-14. It will be noticed that among the network of treaties with various countries, many wives were given to him as sureties for the treaties. One of these wives was from the Ammonites, who was the mother of Hoboam, the next king of Israel. A wife was given as one of the most precious gifts that could be bestowed. They were important because it meant an assurance that both trade agreements and political alliances would be preserved. Wives provided the closest tie that could be forged among these leaders. For instance, Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter, and brought her into the city of David. I Kings 3 1. She seemed to be a very choice wife, for we read that Solomon made also an house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife. 1 Kings 7, 8. Apparently Solomon didn't have all his wives living at the palace. But, there never has been an established rule as to how a man should arrange the 132 living quarters of his wives. Wives usually differ from each other in many ways and dash in their personalities, their special duties, talents, forms of occupation, and particular family obligations. Often a husband provides separate homes for them, as Jacob did for his four wives. See Genesis 31, 33. On the other hand, sometimes many or all of the wives would reside in the same dwelling each taking hold of different duties of domestic business. They would eat at the same table, look after each other's welfare, and their children would play and associate together as brothers and sisters. Each mother would have as much interest in the children of her sister wives as she would her own. In the case of sickness or sorrow, they would all share the burden. In the evening the family would gather together to visit, study, or pray. It was then that the patriarch could extend his understanding and teach the principles that would bind his family closer together and lead them to a better, richer and more pleasing life. Probably fewer troubles, difficulties and sacrifices were experienced by those who dwelt together than by those who chose to live separately, but each family was free to choose their own lifestyle. Plurality of wives was not popular with just Solomon and Israel, but also among many of the other nations and their rulers. They considered a wealthy, wise and honorable king to have the right to contribute as many children to the community as he could. 133. The Ammonites, Amalekites, Adamites, Moabites, Egyptians, etc., 
rule wants of the chosen lineage. They carried many of the doctrines and teachings of their forefathers with them, and they, therefore, practiced circumcision, plural marriage, etc., for them to offer their daughters in marriage, even plural marriage, to King Solomon was honorable and proper. Thus, they willingly contributed wives to Solomon's household, as he was better calculated to have wives and children than anyone else in Israel. So because of his wise counsel and spiritual greatness, the Lord blessed him with many wives and concubines. But in time even this man who was so wise turned from his righteousness by taking wives from among nations who were idolaters and dashed something the Lord had expressly forbidden. See our Kings 11, 1-2 Solomon was not condemned for marrying many women, but he fell into disfavor with the Lord when he took these unconverted heathen women who began to convert him to worshiping other gods. See Kings 11:10. Going back a little, However, as the temple neared completion, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holiest. The temple dedication soon followed and was no less astounding than the temple itself. God placed a cloud over the building and fire came down to consume the sacrifice. God again appeared to Solomon telling him that the temple had divine acceptance. We must note here that Solomon was a polygamist during the time he was receiving blessings and 134 appearances from the Lord. All of these blessings and wives continued to increase until we read one of the most startling scriptures in the Bible which says that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. 1 Kings 11, 3, wow! It is possible to have too much of a good thing, and regretfully this is what happened to Solomon. It is written that Solomon loved many strange women from the nations of the Moabites, Ammonites, Adamites, Zidonians, and Hittites. And, it came to pass when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. 1 Kings 11, 4 So serious was this introduction of paganism into the temple of the Lord by these foreigners, that God appeared to Solomon a third time to warn him that if it were not corrected, the day would come when the kingdom would be torn apart. See our Kings 11, 9-13 Solomon failed in his home missionary work by not converting these women to the Hebrew faith. Instead they converted him to some of their heathen practices. This is not without a plausible reason, however. Most men have trouble controlling one woman. So no wonder old Solomon had trouble with a thousand. God rebuked him for the alien element in his household and in the temple, but not for his polygamy. God said to Solomon, Thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart, to do the only which was right in mine eyes. A Kings 14, 8, remember that God was speaking of David, who lived polygamy for 45 years. It was the direction of the heart, not polygamy, that concerned the Lord. 
135. Whenever a man took more wives than he could provide for, control, or instruct, it was called multiplying wives. And like any excess, this was forbidden by the law. See Jude. 17. 17. Solomon was not inclined to use wisdom in this particular matter, and his wives delved into strange and heathenistic customs in their temple. This was a reversal to the law and dash his wives had more control over Solomon than he had over them. Opponents of polygamy will often quote the scripture that says, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. When from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee, thou mayst not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall, henceforth, return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Jude 17, 14-17 Notice that this scripture says that he cannot multiply horses to himself, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. If this means that the king shall not have more than one wife, then it also 137 means that he cannot have more than one horse. That's a poor interpretation and doesn't make sense. However, this scripture does not mean that he is limited to one horse. Neither does it mean that he is limited to one wife. When it says that the king shall not multiply wives to himself, it means in exceeding great numbers and dash more than he is able to properly take care of or govern. Solomon probably violated the law pertaining to horses, too, for he had 40,000 stalls of horses. Thus, it can be seen that even among the people of God, there are some who become unworthy of family blessings. These blessings are dispensed to men according to their faithfulness and are taken from them when they are unworthy. Some receive many wives, some a few, others one, and in some cases none at all. Some wives are lost after they have been given to them. Hence, faithfulness to the Lord is the criteria to measure a man and dash not his position, his fame, talents or riches. Since Solomon had 300 concubines, we should consider an explanation of what a concubine is and why these holy men took them as wives. A concubine was not a moral stigma, as we seem to think today. Usually she was a woman taken from a foreign country, and was a wife with only a few less rights than another wife might have. Some also consider a concubine to be the wife, a servant or handmaid, given to a husband by a barren wife as in the case of Bilhah being given by Rachel to Jacob. The difference then between a concubine and a wife would be mainly in the property settlements, should the concubine seek a divorce and return to her former country and people. If such a circumstance, 138, arose, 
she could not take the wealth or property of the Israelites back to her country. She left as she came. The children born to a concubine has no such differences. The names of children born to a concubine were listed in the genealogy of the patriarchs, see Genesis 22-24, Akron. 122, and were recognized as Israelites. In considering the early references to this subject, Abraham had the first concubine mentioned in the Bible. Caleb had two concubines named Machar Akron. 248 and Afar V. 46. Manasseh had a wife and a concubine. Akron. 714. This concubine had a son who took two sisters to wife, Akron. 715. King Saul had a concubine to Sam. 21. 11. David had many concubines to Sam. 513-16. And Hobom had 18 wives and 60 concubines to Akron. 11. 21. Esau had two concubines named Adder and Aholabama, and his son had a concubine named Timna. Gideon had many wives, but only one concubine, Judges 8.30-31. Belshazzar had both wives and concubines, Dan. 5. 2. In some instances it was a considered wrong for the common Israelite to marry a foreign woman. Israelites should never accept the customs or religion of foreigners. But if foreigners were converted, then marriage was permitted. Solomon brought in these strange women, but he did not convert them, which became his downfall. The prophet Nehemiah saw the negative results of such marriages exemplified in the lives of Israelite children who could not speak in the Jews' language, 139, but according to the language of each people. Nay. 13, 24, he rebuked them by saying that even wise old Solomon made this mistake. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel, nevertheless even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all these great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? Nay. 13, 26-27, however, in some instances, foreign women were brought in as wives to build up the kingdom of Israel. For example, when the tribe of Benjamin began to diminish in size, the other tribes went over to the inhabitants of Jebushchilid and took 400 young virgins that had known no man by lying with any male, and they brought them unto the camp. Judges 21.12, thus, by polygamy. They were able to again build up the tribe so that a tribe be not destroyed out of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin continued to use these foreign women to build up their tribe, and also went over to the vineyards of Shil and captured more wives. Judges 21 20-21 
Martin Luther accepted polygamy as a natural state of affairs and did not condemn it as a matter of lust, but rather a common result of practicality. The polygamy of the patriarchs, Gideon, David, Solomon, etc., was a matter 140 of necessity, not of libertinism. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received from God the promise that he would multiply their seed as the stars of heaven, or the sands of the sea. The necessity of consanguinity was this, that when a man was elected judge or king, all his poor female relations crowded about him, and he had to take them as wives or concubines. It was a burdensome imposition rather than an agreeable relaxation. Solomon's wives, most of them, were probably no more to him than my nieces, Magdalene and Elizabeth Buttermy, who have remained under my roof virgins, as when they came here. Luther's Table Talk, p. 304. The history of Solomon ends in sadness, because of the poor management of his family. But there is no reason to condemn the practice of polygamy, because one man failed to properly conduct himself in it. Any good thing can be turned into bad use. Who would deprive mankind of the use of fire because some men have been burned to death? Neither can we legislate against polygamy or marriage because some men commit adultery. Many men are inclined to acknowledge the principle of polygamy as a God-given right, but not for themselves. Hence, many refuse to live it while a few others may wrongly multiply wives to themselves. Faithfulness and obedience are essential for the man who accepts it, or he may fail as did Solomon. 141. It has been said that the Old Testament tells of an age of darkness, savagery and ignorance. But if anyone will take the time to read about the magnificence and grandeur of Solomon's temple and compare it to the structures of our day, he will note that it was a masterpiece of intelligent construction, not to mention its beauty and richness. But the spiritual impact upon the building was as rich as the furnishings, and this may be quickly observed by anyone reading the 22nd chapter of 1 Chronicles and the 3rd and 4th chapters of 11 Chronicles. The exceedingly rich and wise Queen of Sheba correctly said that the half has not been told. Even the Saviour spoke of Solomon in all his glory. It does not take much reading to learn how prophets and seers were constantly giving the word of the Lord to these polygamists. God often appeared to these men, which clearly indicates his divine approval of their calling, their lifestyle, and their polygamy. The kingdom of Israel lasted forty years under Saul, forty years under David, and forty more years under Solomon. These three polygamists, during that 120 years, raised Israel to its greatest peak of glory. Let the reader look back upon the life and labors of Solomon with particular interest. Although he sinned because his heart was turned away to heathen rituals, we must consider the rest of his life and works. Solomon's throne was established by the Lord forever. The dedication of his temple was acknowledged by the Lord. It was built according to the revelations of God and became the wonder of the world. 
God blessed Solomon's kingdom with riches and 142 peace unparalleled in history. God gave him wisdom which was famed throughout all nations, and he appeared to Solomon in dreams and spoke to him personally. Yet he was not condemned for his polygamy. 143, chapter 14, Prophets, Priests and Kings. Okay, so my mom's going to be reading tonight. Uh, she's just so the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. There's a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon for questions and comments during the live show. And let's get into the commentary. Thank you for listening. You may now speak, boy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't focused on that because, like, this whole thing happened with Olivia, um, and I was like, okay, there's nothing happening. I'm gonna say something, and then you start talking immediately after I start talking. I'm like, oh wait. Oh, that was all still part of the recording. It wasn't finished. That's why you should look at the studio and make sure that re- the studio has stopped with the re- the clip before you start talking. Yeah, you can bring it up. Get away from me. I have a headset. Uh, Arius came in the room. I'm the only one up here. I'm working on my pup right now. Okay, anyway, I'm getting loaded up here at the the uh the mine. So anyway, um so who's reading mom's reading tonight? I can't hear you. Uh yeah, mom's reading. She's just trying to figure out her headset. It's being kinda dumb. I can't hear her. Let me check. Okay, well, um, it's it's a good thing that Mom's been talking this whole time while she's in the studio. <laughs> okay, I, I figured out why we couldn't hear her. Say something, Mom. Yeah, he was thinking, oh, it must be your... Um, headset or whatever, and I'm like, okay, mute, unmute, mute, unmute with my phone, and then it turns out, no, it is none of the above. It was me muted in the studio. So it was I, me. Okay, so that's better. Um, do you have the book? Oh, it's in there. Okay, all right. Let me go and do that. Bring my phone with me to there. Perfect. Okay. Let's see. Oh, goodness. We're going to move some stuff out of the way here. 
I've got the diaper bag over here. Okay. Was this on the right page? There was no bookmark on it. Nope. It's this page was just two, on the chart. Uh, it's, it's page 128 is uh, the beginning of Solomon, chapter 13. The plug is plug in yeah, I got a nine okay. gram. Where is the uh, little piece of paper that was in here, Emmett? <laughs> okay, Sorry. chapter 13, Solomon, page 128. And this doesn't look like it's a long chapter. Yeah, this is not very long. Okay. Let's begin in First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9 through 10. His name shall be Solomon and will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build an home for my name and he shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9 through 10. Hang on one second. When David died, he left an inheritance consisting of the most powerful kingdom in existence. At that time, this was to be a patriarchal succession that seldom occurred in Israel the way that it should have. David's son, Solomon, inherited the throne of that kingdom. For the first time in Israel, its leadership had a successful example of passing of power from father to son. The reign of Solomon served to make an actual make actual and legitimate the covenant God made to David concerning the continuity continuity of the house of David as a ruling power in Israel. The establishment of this principle of succession was to be the prime stable factor in Israel during the span of over three centuries. That's Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible, chapter or volume 5, page 478. And now we're on page 129. I didn't know if you had anything to say about that right off the go. Now I'm just headed down from the mine, so I'm going to be breaking up for a little bit. So, I'll okay. Mute myself. Okay. The scriptures say that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. That's First Kings chapter three verse three, and that he had made a thousand sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord. When Solomon went up to Gibeon to make sacrifices, the Lord appeared to him in a dream at night and asked him what he would choose as a gift. Solomon told the Lord that since he was a king over this vast dominion of Israel and was still only a little child, he asked, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I, I may discern between good and bad. The Lord was so pleased that he granted this request and much more. In Haley's Bible Handbook, page 250, quote, he became the literary prodigy of the world of his day. He, his intellectual attainments were the wonder of the age. Kings came from the ends of the earth to hear him. He lectured on botany and zoology. He was a scientist, a political ruler, a businessman with vast enterprises, a poet, moralist, and preacher. End quote from Haley's Bible Handbook, page 250. It seems that the Lord blessed and prospered everything that Solomon did. He received everything that any man ever could could ever want. His business enterprises extended to every nation. 
He wrote over 3,000 proverbs, 105 songs, or I mean, sorry, 1,005 songs, and many other works, including three books of the Bible. Added to this, he constructed the most beautiful and elaborate temple ever built. Under his reign, Israel became the most powerful nation, and Jerusalem the most magnificent city, and the temple the most beautiful building. It was indeed the golden age of Israel's history. Among all these grand gifts and blessings, God gave Solomon many wives and children. Now we're on page 130. Okay, I'll just continue. Since he asked God for wisdom, God blessed him with wisdom beyond that of any man. This great wisdom made him world-renowned for for he was wiser than all men, and his fame was in all nations. In fact, there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth. That's First Kings, chapter four, verse thirty-four. Even the famous queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon and came to prove him with hard questions, but he answered them easily. She told Solomon that she had heard of his acts and wisdom, but didn't believe it. Sorry, um, I have Amberly here talking to me. I was just asking you to pick up all of these things. I don't know. I don't know. Arius is concerned about something. Okay. Okay, let me start that one a little bit back. Even the famous Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon and came to prove him with hard questions, but he answered them easily. She told Solomon that she had heard of his acts and wisdom, but didn't believe it. After arriving, she said, mine eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. First Kings chapter 10, verse 7. Solomon was a stupendous builder. He had 70,000 men in his general workforce with another 80,000 who were stonecutters. These were all non-Israelites, but his building program developed so fast that he had to draft another 30,000 from among his own people. It took seven years to build the temple. Solomon was determined that only the best was good enough for God. So materials were brought from all over the world. By our present standards, the cost of the temple would have been billions of dollars. Building the temple was only part of the program. He built an elaborate palace comprised of four magnificent structures, three fortresses, or three fortress cities were built, and also several small, smaller fortresses. Another expansive work was the wall that surrounded the cities. Page 131. Solomon also had yeah. an army. Okay, you need to say something. <laughs> well, I mean, I told you I was coming down from the mine, so I couldn't talk for a minute. I could still hear you, but it would be pointless for me to try to say anything, you know, the last page. But anyway, so... Yeah. Um, did you know that the last or the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, Jesus Christ is not called a carpenter? The word used there is stonemason, which makes more sense, seeing as how he is the Davidic servant. I mean, not the Davidic servant, the Davidic king, you know, Messiah, but. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. And I don't know why it got changed, you know, to later manuscripts where he is, uh, you know, he's a carpenter. And people will go on long, elaborate things trying to say, well, 
he wasn't a carpenter that made houses because uh, they didn't have wood to make houses. Their houses were made out of uh, adobe brick and that, that sort of thing. But they'll say, oh, he made furniture. But, well, no, actually, he was a stonemason. So, and um, I don't know, stonemasons, maybe they built temples. I, you know, maybe they built houses. I'm not exactly sure. I do know that the seed of Moses is always made out of stone. So the seed of Moses in the synagogue is where they will sit down and they will read the Torah out loud to the synagogue and then they'll stand up and they'll pontificate on the, the text that they had just read. Um, so when Jesus says, you know, when they sit in the seat of Moses, do what they say and not what they do, is because what they're saying is they're sitting in the seat of Moses, which was stone. They are reading the Torah and then they stand up and then they you know, they pontificate. So, you know, when Jesus says, do what they say, or do what they say, but not what they do. Well, what they do is when they stand up and they trash the Torah with all of their opinions, you know, that's, that's where they get into error. Anyway, I just thought I'd offer that little bit of insight there. Can you hear me now? Yes, okay. I can hear you now. Well, it doesn't work when you try to talk and you're muted. I don't know why I can't remember that. <laughs> That's why That's Emmett needs to be listening, too, so he can say, Mom, I can hear you talking in the other room, but I can't hear you talking on the radio. That's what he was doing <laughs> earlier. He was like, yeah. uh, you're still muted. And I'm like, okay, hold on. And then I like mute and unmute. And then I'm like, okay, how about this? He's like, no, you're still muted. And then I'm like, okay, hold on. And then I tried it a different way. And then he goes, wait, you're not even unmuted in in the studio. And I was like, okay, yeah. well, that would probably help. Well, and he's <laughs> supposed to be watching the studio for callers, which, by the uh-huh. way, everybody, you know, the guest call-in number is open. The lines are open. It's 917-889-8827. And there is a chat room, and somebody was in the chat room, but they didn't say anything, and then they left. So the chat room Fun. does work. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and it's open, and Emmett should be kind of watching it. Or are you sitting in the front room or the office? I'm in the front room now. I was is he cooking. watching the studio, or is he... He's, he's in the kitchen watching the studio. I'm on it on my phone. He's though. on it. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, why, why not? Why aren't you on it on the computer? Because I'm making food. <laughs> oh, he okay. He took over what I was doing. You know, Emmett, um, if you bring that chair from downstairs and bring it upstairs, Mom can sit in the office in a nice, comfortable chair. There is not enough room in the office. And there, there is nice absolutely room in there that mom got from her work. There absolutely is enough room in the office for that chair. So, anyway, go ahead, Kim. I'll, I'm not arguing with you, Emma. You're 16 years old. Your spatial recognition is obviously not adequate to understand that there is enough room in that office for that chair. 
but we'll have a conversation about it later, not on the program. Anyway, okay, go ahead, Kim. Page 131. Solomon also had an army in which men served one month each year. See Chronicles 27, 1 through 15. It was similar to the army that was organized under David. However, it, in, it included more chariot horses and mules. Yet with such an army, he enjoyed mostly peace during his reign. He gained territorial expansion with treaties and com- compensations rather than military conquests. In so doing, he increased trade relations, resources, and a vast shipping enterprise. See 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, also chapter 9, verses 10 through 14. It will be noticed that among the network of treaties with various countries, many wives were given to him as sureties for the treaties. One of these wives was from the Ammonite, who was um, the mother of Rehoboam, the next king of Israel. A wife was given as one of the most precious gifts that could be bestowed. They were important because it meant an assurance that both trade agreements and political alliances would be preserved. Wives provided the closest tie that could be forged among these leaders. For instance, Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. That's in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. She seemed to be a very choice wife, for we read that Solomon made also an house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 8. Apparently, Solomon didn't have all his wives living at the palace, but there never has been, there never has deep an established rule. I think it means then, okay, but it says there never has deep. Okay, I don't know why. <laughs> there never has deep an established rule as to how a man should arrange the living quarters of his wife. Wives usually differ from each other in many ways, in their personalities, their special duties, talents, forms of occupation, in particular, family obligations. Often a husband provides separate homes for them, as Jacob did for his four wives. See Genesis chapter 31, verse 33. On the other hand, sometimes many or all of the wives would reside in the same dwelling, each taking hold of different duties of domestic business. They would eat at the same table, look after each other's welfare, and their children would play and associate together as brothers and sisters. Each mother would have as much interest in the children of her sister wives as she would her own. In this case of sickness or sorrow, they would all share the burden. In the evening, the family would gather together to visit, study, or pray. It was then that the patriarch could extend his understanding and teach the principles that would bind his family closer together and lead them to a better, richer, and more pleasing life. Probably fewer troubles, difficulties, and sacrifices were experienced by those who dwelt together than by those who choose to live separately. But each family was free to choose their own lifestyle. Plurality of wives was not popular with just Solomon and Israel, but also among many of the other nations and their rulers. They considered a wealthy, wise, and honorable king to have the right to contribute as many children to the community as he could. Page 133. The Ammonites. You skipped over Amal- page 132 and stopped. Okay, I didn't see it. Oh, it was like at the bottom of the other page. Sorry. I was in the middle <laughs> of the quote still, and then you like say 133, and you just keep on going without even letting me talk. So. Um, Apologies. Uh, anyway, in the Torah, we're not supposed to mix linen with wool, and there is a deeper meaning to that commandment 
which is a commandment in the Torah, that we're not supposed to mix with uh, the heathen nations, with the Gentiles. And Jesus Christ even talked about being equally yoked. A Gentile and an Israelite are never going to be equally yoked unless the Gentile becomes an Israelite. So when Solomon was doing what he was doing with, like, taking all of these foreign women, he was corrupting the kingdom. Um, and I had something else to say, but I was trying to keep it all straight because, like, you just went over all this stuff and you wouldn't stop. And now I can't remember what it was that I wanted to say. It's irritating. Um, thank you for reading, though. But I don't know. Maybe it'll come back to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. It was important. I know that much. I guess. Was it about all the wives living in the same place or not? Well, I I was thinking about that, but I guess I could speak to that. Like, it's important for a husband or a father to have influence over his children, especially if he's a righteous man who is trying to lead and, and instruct his family in the ways of God. And he can't do that if he's like Cody Brown, you know, and his four wives living in four different houses where he's not there all the time, you know. So, I mean, these women want their separate homes, and I understand that. Um, but, they, you know, the, the, the father needs to be able to be with the, the, the children and the wives. You know, and uh, I don't know. I, I I know Kim and I talk about like how like she would want if if we ever lived plural marriage, uh, she'd want her own home, and I understand that. And uh, to tell you the truth, uh, I don't really want to live polygamy um, because I like my family and I don't want to and I I've been in a bad marriage before where there's been conflict and what Kim and I have is like good and I wouldn't want to screw that up for anything and uh, the only way I'd ever consider even living plural marriage is if God specifically and in person commanded us to live it um, that he he would have to command us, not just me and not just her. So if Kim, like, found some girl that, or woman that she really liked and she thought she would be a great, you know, addition to the family, and I I would be like, okay, well, we'll see how things go. But if I never got revelation that that was something that God wanted me to do, it wouldn't happen. And vice versa, if Kim ever got, uh, if I ever brought a woman home and she never got revelation about it, guess what? Well, because Kim and I are equally yoked and because we are one, um, I would not go behind her back and marry somebody else um, without her receiving revelation. Because part of the ceremony of plural marriage is that the first wife hands the plural wife to my hand 
you know. So, anyway. Uh, that other stuff, uh, if it's important, it'll come back into my mind. If it's not, then it won't. So, I'm not worried about it. So, just stop, stop reading at the page so that I can say if I'm going to say something so I don't have to, like, sit there and have all this stuff build up. Because okay. I'm driving, so. Yeah. Oh, you're breaking up a little. Oh, okay. I'll mute myself. Okay. All right. Continuing on page 133. The Ammonites, Amalekites, Edomites, Moabites, Egyptians, etc., were all once of the chosen lineage. They carried many of the doctrines and teachings of their forefathers with them, and they therefore practiced circumcision, plural marriage, etc. For them to offer their daughters into marriage, even in plural marriage, to King Solomon was honorable and proper. Thus, they willingly contributed wives to Solomon's household, as he was better calculated to have wives and children than anyone else in Israel. So, because of his wife's counsel and spiritual greatness, the Lord blessed him with many wives and concubines. But in time, even this man, who was so wise, turned from his righteous righteousness by taking wives from among nations who were idolaters, something the Lord had expressly forbidden. See First Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through 1 and 2. Solomon was not condemned for marrying many women, but he fell into disfavor with the Lord when he took these unconverted heathen women who began to convert him to worshiping other gods. See Kings chapter 11, verse 10. Go back a little, however, as the temple nearly um, completed, or as the temple neared completion. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, of holiest is what it says. The temple dedication soon followed and was no less astounding than the temple itself. God placed a cloud over the building and fire came down to consume the sacrifice. God again appeared to Solomon, telling him that the temple had divine acceptance. We must note here that Solomon, hold on one second, just making sure that I, isn't that right? Okay. We must note here that Solomon was a polygamist during the time he was receiving blessings and appearances from the Lord. All of these blessings and wives continued to increase until we read one of the most startling scriptures in the Bible, which says that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. First Kings chapter 11, verse 3. Wow. It is possible to have too much of a good thing. And right, regretfully, this is what happened to Solomon. Now we're on page 134. Okay, I can remember what I was going to say. Okay, so something really interesting. Mm -hmm. Solomon took the uh, Pharaoh's daughter as a wife. That's important because when Solomon was building his temple... He was instructed by God to make a pneumatic sand um, system in the Holy of Holies. So the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, um, the mercy seat and all of that. And there was, um, there was, I don't know how you, I don't know how to explain it. There was a sand system underneath the, uh, underneath the, the floor where the ark was placed, and in, uh, if the if the temple was under attack, uh, they would break something, and then the sand would go out, and the floor would lo- lower down 
and they were able to take the Ark of the Covenant into the um, into Jeremiah's Grotto, which is what they call the, the tunnel system under the Temple Mount. And um, it was the Pharaoh uh, in their alliance with uh, Solomon through the marriage of Pharaoh's daughter that brought that technology so that that could be you know, built properly, and before the destruction of the temple um, during the time of Jeremiah, uh, nobody knows what happened to the ark, but that's what happened. They, they broke the uh, the pneumatic system uh, of sand that was able to cause the floor to go down to get that um, to get that the Ark of the Covenant into a safe hiding place under the temple. Now, something interesting, um, Ron Wyatt was a Seventh-day Adventist that God used to find many different artifacts. God showed him and had an angel come and instruct him where to go, and he was able to go into Jeremiah's grotto and go down underneath the temple in the caves underneath the temple, and that that is where the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, and it, actually, it's under the skull, uh, the skull hill or Golgotha, because um, the tunnel the tunnel system goes underneath that area. So something interesting: um, the angel instructed Ron Wyatt to take a sample of blood off of the side of the mercy seat where they didn't sprinkle anything so every year one side the sacrifice uh, there was blood sprinkled on it for the yearly uh, sacrifice or whatever uh, for the day of atonement I think it was and uh, so that had that side had lamb's blood on it but the other side was kept uh, clean for a future sacrifice well, when, Jer- or when Ron Wyatt was in the room where the Ark of the Covenant was, there was blood on both sides. And Ron Wyatt was instructed to touch the Ark, so he had authority to touch the Ark, and to take a sample of blood from the mercy seat. He took that blood to um, a lab in Israel, and they reconstituted the blood, and under a microscope, they could see that the dried blood, which should have been dead, was still alive. And they could see it was human blood. They further went into, uh, in depth in trying to figure out what in the world's going on here, and they found out that that blood had 23 chromosomes from the mother, but only one chromosome from the father. And Kim and I were talking about, like, um, Down syndrome kids and how they have an extra chromosome and how it makes them so different. Well, Jesus Christ, his father, was God. And I don't know how all the chromosomal whatever from, from the father works, but there was only one chromosome from the father. And the blood was still alive after they reconstituted the blood. So... Um, in with uh, six high priests to remove the Ark of the Covenant so they could build the temple and have the Ark, but uh, each of those high priests died when they touched the Ark because they did not have authority from God to touch it. 
And uh, Ron Wyatt actually had to go in there with a, a backboard, like the one that you see for fire rescue or whatever. And he put each of those priests that had died because they touched the ark onto that backboard and they had to pull them out. And they were dead. And they don't, the Jews know where the ark is. That's why, they're, that's why whenever they are questioned about it, they'll basically just say, well, well, God's in charge of that. We are not worried about that. We're just going to do the part that we have to do because they know it's there, but they don't know what to do about it because they can't touch it. Um, and I believe that when the Davidic servant goes into Jerusalem, after all the stuff that happens, um, that he will be able to take the ark out of Jeremiah's grotto. And it'll be kind of like the sword in the stone with King Arthur, you know, where nobody could pull the stone out, or the sword out of the stone. Well, that's kind of a type and a foreshadow for the king of, of Ephraim, Messiah ben Joseph, or the Davidic servant, that he will be able to go in and remove the ark because he does have authority to touch the ark where other people do not. So, of course, he'll have to have uh, help, and that's where the four Davidic servants come in, which is talked about in um, Isaiah chapter 11, which is the stem, who is Messiah ben Joseph, not Messiah ben Judah. The stem, the root, the rod, and the branch these four individuals will be the ones that bring the ark out. So, anyway, um, Kim, can you see if there's somebody in the chat room? It looks like somebody did say something, but I, you know, I'm driving, I can't read it, so. Oh, you're not even in there. Uh, Emmett? Yep, he's on it. Okay. Okay, I'll keep reading. Okay, go ahead. It is written that Solomon loved many strange women from the nations of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, Zidonians, sorry, and Hittites. And it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wife turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. First Kings chapter 11, verse 4. So serious was the inter- this introduction of paganism into the temple of the Lord by these foreigners that God appeared to Solomon a third time to warn him if it were not corrected, the day would come when the kingdom would be torn apart. See 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. Um, he was just reporting to me that nobody is in the chat room. <clears throat> Okay, Solomon failed in his home missionary work by not converting these women to the Hebrew faith. Instead, they converted him to some of their heathen practices. This is not without a plausible reason, however. Most men have trouble controlling one woman, so no wonder old Solomon had trouble with a thousand. God rebuked him for the alien element in his household and in the temple, but not for his polygamy. God said to Solomon, thou hast not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in mine eyes. That's 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 8. You remember that God was speaking of David who lived polygamy for 45 years. 
It was the direction of the heart, not polygamy, that concerned the Lord. Page 135. Yeah, I don't really have anything to say about that. I, other than, like, I understand, like, <clears throat> these women would be impressed because they were with a king and they would have the children of a king and that that might be impressive, like, to build up their, bolster their their um you know their pride or whatever the the their standing in the society that they lived but um I kind of look at it like I don't see it as righteous what, what Solomon did you know he may have impregnated one woman every day of the year and who knows how many children he had but um I don't I don't think it was right and you know God told him not to multiply wives and um, you cannot keep the Torah instructions for polygamy if you have too many wives um, you can't oh and it's just like you know you're not supposed to multiply horses either it doesn't mean or a sword it doesn't mean you can't have multiple swords or multiple horses but you can only have so much that you can take care of personally so um, it breeds, uh, well, first of all, it's a breaking of Torah law. And uh, in case people don't understand, sin is the breaking of God's laws. The Torah was the instruction God gave to us, and the Torah actually means instructions. So anyway, um, so I was breaking up for a minute. Uh, when I was going up wash plant, did uh, did somebody have a question in the comments? Yeah. No, they didn't. What, what is? Oh, there was nothing there. was in there. Listening. Yeah, he no, he was just reporting that it, there was nothing there. So I was like, okay, oh. and I was just letting you know that. Okay, I am almost to the spur. Okay. And uh, I'll be dumping my load, but I will continue to listen. So and I'll unmute myself. If I'm not all the way at the back of the trailer trying to, you know, get my gate open. <laughs> so I'll mute myself. Um, are you still muted? Okay. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Continuing on page 135. Whenever a man took more wives... Then he could provide for, control, or instruct. It was called multiplying wives. Read that again. Whenever a man took more wives than he could provide for, control, or instruct, that was called multiplying wives, okay? And like any excess, this was forbidden by the law. See Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 17. Solomon uh, was not inclined. <laughs> what? Okay, first of all, um, I like, should you control your wife? Okay, for one. Okay, second of all, um, Solomon could provide for every single one of them. He was flipping rich, like rich, because he was the king, which was also something that he did, which was forbidden. He shouldn't have been that rich. You know, um, it is not given for one man to own that which is above another, wherefore the whole world lieth in sin, and that that applied to the Israelites 
and uh, the king was not supposed to multiply wealth unto himself either. But uh, the instructions in Torah is that you must be able to take care of your wives, their clothing, their food, their homes, and their emotional and sexual needs. And if you've got, you know, ten wives, I mean, I don't know if I could do it for two. (laughs) Just because I'm, like, Kim and I are so busy all the time, we don't, I mean, we're together and we love each other, but we don't, you know, we get, I don't want to get too personal, but, you know, I just don't have the, the sex drive to be with a ton of women and a ton of women would probably be three or two, <laughs> you know, well, Solomon, maybe he could be with 10 and, and, you know, provide for them the way that they were needed to be provided for. But, um, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 wives, like that's ridiculous. And Brigham Young did that, you know, but it doesn't mean it's right. Solomon did it, and he was condemned for it. In fact, God called it an abomination. So anyway, I'm about to pull on the grizz, so I'm going to mute myself again. Okay. Um, I have Eliza coming in with a panic attack. Sorry, little kids having some. Okay, okay, calm down. Yeah, mom's gonna keep reading, okay? But I didn't say you could have this, and your stuff needs to be ready for tomorrow, so. Okay. Some of my kids are a little bit high strung. <laughs> Okay, Eliza, I'm going to be reading, and you're, like, talking in my ear, and I'm on the radio show. Nope. Nope. I don't, I don't see either one, so. Eliza, I'm going to do that after. Okay. I'm going to do that after. You guys can do this stuff in here. Okay, sorry. All right. Solomon was not inclined to use wisdom in this particular matter. His wives delved into strange and heathenistic customs in the temple. This was a reversal to the law. His wives had more control over Solomon than he had over them. Opponents of polygamy will often quote the scripture that says, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 through 17, quote, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall... Say, I will set a king over me, like as all nations are, that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou, thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. That's 
end quote from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 through 17. Notice that this scripture says that he cannot multiply horses to himself, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. If this means that the king shall not have more than one wife, then it also means that he cannot have more than one horse. That's a poor interpretation and doesn't make sense. However, this scripture does not mean that he is limited to one horse. Neither does it mean that he is limited to one wife. When it says that the king shall not multiply wives to himself, it means in exceeding great numbers more than he is able to properly take care of or govern. Solomon probably violated the law of pertaining to horses too, for he had 40,000 stalls of horses. Uh, now we're on page 137. Give it a second. Well, you know, I already said what I said about multiplying horses, and I agree with uh, what Ogden is saying there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So people want to say, oh, because multiplying wives is bad, that means they, they can't be polygamists. Well, as we've already gone over, Jacob was a polygamist before he was anointed as king, and God never reprimanded him for it. Saul was a polygamist before he was anointed as king. And when Saul committed suicide, those women that were Saul's wives were given by the prophet through instruction from God to David. God gave David those wives through the prophet. So when people are like, oh, polygamy is an abomination, well, I guess God does abominations now. You know, if you're going to run with that interpretation, which is a wrong interpretation. So anyway, go ahead, Kim. Okay, that's it can be seen that even among the people of God, there are some who become unworthy of family blessings. These blessings are dispensed to men according to their faithfulness and are taken from them when they are unworthy. Some receive many wives, some a few, others one, and in some cases, none at all. Some wives are lost after they have been given to them. Hence, faithfulness to the Lord is criteria to measure a man, not his position, his fame, talents, or riches. And I understand this part of it, and I just wanted to... Um, say that a lot of this to me seems relatively like um, simple, like, hello, this is common sense. What is wrong with you people? Um, And that's just because if you can't provide for somebody, if you cannot be their equal, you know, if you can't be equally yoked, then you you don't have any business being with that many people. Um, If you're not going to truly be happy, I know a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, you don't need to have um, more than one wife because you can't provide for them or you can't um, wait one second. Oh, Amberly, stop because I can't hear because he's talking so much. Okay, so move over to there, onto the couch and help him, but I don't want any noise. Sorry. So um, all I'm saying is that some of this stuff seems like it is a given. If you cannot provide for a woman, whether it be financially or not, I mean, I a lot of people have this misconception like um, Mark works all the time and I don't work, which is inaccurate. Um, I do work, I teach. And um, so I don't necessarily need him to provide for me, but definitely help provide for all of our children. And so as we provide for our children together, because I help with that as well, you know, equally, we are very equally yoked, I think. Um, 
then also I help provide for him and all of his needs. But then again, um, there are things that he provides for me that, um, that I need, you know, as far as like my physical um, needs or also emotional, my spiritual needs, he provides for that. If he can't, um, you know, 100% provide for that, then he doesn't have any business having another wife because um, it gets too much for the one person to bear. Now, a lot of people, especially pregnant, would be thinking like, oh, well, you know, what if the one woman has a lot of emotional baggage and everything and, you know, it takes up more time with this one wife than it does with the other. Um, I'm not saying anything about that or special cases or different needs um, of each individual well, wife. I'm just saying that with each new person that comes into a, you know, marriage, a polygamous marriage, there still would be an equal yoke kind of bearing. So, yes, I wouldn't, if we had a sister wife or another wife or something, I would not be providing for her, you know, physical needs. But I definitely could help out with emotional. I would help out with, um, you know, her, you know, where she would live. We would be, it would be a family event. It wouldn't be like he's going to have a separate relationship with somebody else and, um he would just have a woman on the side. That's not how that works. It would have to be um, everybody all together. So like Solomon, obviously with so many wives, he could not provide for them in that way. And so the women would have to pick up the slack and I'm not sure how that would all work. Maybe they had to be it more like work none. Because I don't know. God, yeah. God didn't authorize what Solomon did. So um, I was um, going to make yeah. a joke. Okay, uh, uh-huh. there were no millennials in the day of Solomon, so you didn't have whiny women. <laughs> there were wi- these millennial women, or these uh, what do they call the new ones? The millennials, okay, the Gen Xers. No, that's you. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, technically, Kim is a millennial. <laughs> yes, I am. Oh, because she was born in '83, but you know what? She was close enough to the greatest, uh, well, not the greatest generation, but, you know, I mean, Gen Xers are pretty great, so just saying. <laughs> anyway, um, go ahead, Emmett, and go see what my friend Steven said in the chat room, and uh, could you read that real quick? Um, he didn't see it before. Um, there was a, a place in the uh, the Revelation that became Section 132 where it talked about ten women. And some people think that ten women would be kind of the limit. But my friends, I think it's Stephen that's saying something about 18 women. But like I said, I'm driving. So I just took a glance at it. So he just something. said, um, he said the Jews say it meant not to multiply above what David had more than three. So not more oh. than 18 wives. Well, David had more than three wives before he was anointed as king. Um, I think he had four or five. Um, but, well, actually, no, because uh, King Saul's wives were not given to David before he was anointed as king because he was anointed before he took the throne, before, da- uh, before Saul died. 
So, uh, okay, so what I was saying about Section 132. So William Law wrote in the Nauvoo Expositor, which was published in June of 1844 before the death of Hiram and Joseph, that Hiram read to him and to Jane Law, both of which have affidavits in the Nauvoo Expositor, and there's other people, too, that, that talked about this, uh, where Hiram read section, basically section 132, it's the same ling- language. However, when William Law saw the published uh, revelation that Brigham presented, uh, William said, that's not the revelation. I mean, he, that there was elements of the revelation that were part of what Brigham pro- published, but William Law said that everything was written on two pages and the revelation that Brigham gave was like eight or nine pages. Also, um, they, uh, there's another place where it, it talks about so-and-so wrote down the revelation. It took him about 45 minutes. Um, and like it would take a lot longer in cursive and good penmanship to write down what Brigham received because Brigham didn't receive it. Brigham added to it. So um, we do have evidence that Section 132 was in Nauvoo before the death of, of Joseph and Hiram. So those people who want to say that Brigham's the one that made that revelation, well, there's evidence that uh, it was actually read to William and Jane Law by Hiram, who received it from Joseph Smith and received it from the Lord. But Brigham added much to it, which was not part of God's word. And Brigham did other things like that, too. Like, I can read in the revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants, and I can see by discernment where things have been added. But also, Brigham took multiple revelations, and he would mash them together. And now people are like, well, it's just this, and this is with this, and that, and whatever, especially Section 103 of the Doctrine and Covenants. There's multiple revelations there, but people don't see it because they don't have the discernment, and they, they, they think it all goes together, and it does not. Brigham wanted it to go together, so he, like, spliced things and added things and took things out and made it into his own thing, which is sad, but that's, that's what wicked men who pretend to be righteous do. They just add things, like... Uh, a certain individual who was meant to be my Elias, he received many revelations from God about me coming. And that was in the 1980s when he received those things. And then I didn't show up until 2014, which is when I showed up on the scene, basically. And, uh, you know, by that time he had added his name all over the dang place in those revelations and they were corrupted so anyway my friend steve or steven uh, he's my friend on facebook um i think it's steven i'm not sure anyway um he's also saying some other things so um let's address that real quick and then you can uh continue on with the reading and we're, we're pretty close to done aren't we with this chapter kim yeah, pretty close. Okay, so I have a page uh, left. Oh, okay. You know what? Let's just finish the page and then we will read 
the comment in the chat room. So once again, everyone who's listening, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. We're live streaming until 8 p.m. And the chat room is available for questions and comments at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. So we'll get to the comments in the chat room after we finish this chapter and we're almost done Uh, Kim just said what one page left or something like that yeah it's one page in this book not um... oh so it's like three or four pages yeah yeah so if you want to hear what else um, Steve was replying he said he had six, so not multiply by more than three, six. Oh, okay, I understand. To, to the so third 18. equals 18. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then he okay. said, I just find it interesting what they have to say. I mostly do not believe them, of course. And he said they know Hebrew, so learning more about it and them helps me understand the Old Testament more fully. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like people read that the, the Old Testament with a Gentile mindset and they lose a lot because they don't see it in the, uh, the reading of the Jews. So, and it's the same thing with the Book of Mormon. Like, the Book of Mormon is a, an Israelite record. And in order to stand the deeper meanings of the Book of Mormon, you have to read it with an Israelite mindset. Most people read it with a Gentile mindset, and then they twist it all out of you know, out of shape, and they yeah. don't get it. They don't read it, and they, they they have all these interpretations, which they get by their own mind, which uh, is a problem, and then they trust other people who get their interpretations, you know, and they read it through their Gentile mindset. And, you know, the interpretation of Scripture belongs to God, not man. You have to get it from God to understand the true interpretation of it. Um, and we're not supposed to trust in the flesh that includes the flesh of our own mind and the flesh of other people. We should hear what people have to say, but then go to God and get revelation for ourselves so that we know the true interpretation and get confirmation of the spirit. So we understand his interpretation because it's the only interpretation that really matters, but we can study things out, and if we understand things in a Hebrew mindset, we can understand things more clearly, which helps us to come to the conclusion as to what it's saying, and then we go to God with our interpretation, our interpretation, and we ask him if it's correct, and we get confirmation, or the Spirit withdraws from us, and we can know that our interpretation is incorrect, and we should continue to study it out. And ask for inspiration and revelation about how it is that we should be interpreting it. So, anyway, go ahead, Kim. Okay, I'll continue. Since Solomon had 300 concubines, we should consider an explanation of what a concubine is and why these holy men took them as wives. A concubine was not a mortal, I'm sorry, a, a moral stigma as we seem to think today. Usually she was a woman taken from a foreign country and was a wife with only a few less rights than another wife might have. Some also consider a concubine to be the wife, a servant or handmaid, given to a husband by a barren wife, as in the case of Bilhah, 
being given by Rachel to Jacob. The difference then between a concubine and a wife would be mainly in the property settlement should the concubine seek a divorce and return to her former country and people. If a circumstance arose, she could not take the wealth or property of the Israelites back to her country. She left as she came. The children born to a concubine had no such differences. The names of children born to a concubine were listed in the genealogy of the patriarch. See Genesis chapter 22, verse 24, and Chronicles chapter 1, verse 22, and were recognized as Israelites. In considering the early references to the subject, Abraham had the first concubine mentioned in the Bible. Caleb had two concubines named Maacha, Maacha, and in First Chronicles chapter two, verse forty-eight, and Ephah, verse forty-six. Manasseh had a wife and a concubine in First Chronicles chapter seven, verse fourteen. This concubine had a son who took two sisters to wife. First Chronicles chapter seven, verse fifteen. King Saul had a concubine in Second Samuel, verse twenty-one. I mean, chapter 21, verse 11, David had many concubines in 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And Rehoboam had 18 wives and 60 concubines in 2 Chronicles, chapter 11, verse 21. Esau had two concubines named Ada and Aholibama, and his son had a concubine named Timnah. Gideon had many wives, but only one concubine. Judges chapter 8, verse 30 through 31. Belshazzar had both wives and concubines in Daniel chapter 5, verse 2. In some instances, it was considered wrong for the common Israelite to marry a foreign woman. Israelites should never accept the customs or religion of foreigners. But if foreigners were converted, then marriage was permitted. Solomon brought in these strange women but he did not convert them, which became his downfall. The prophet Nehemiah saw the negative results of such marriages exemplified in the lives of Israelite children who could not speak in the Jews' language. But according to the language of each people, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 24, he rebuked them by saying that even wise old Solomon made this mistake. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 26 through 27, it says, quote, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all these great evil, no transgress or to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? End quote from Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 26 through... 27. Um, if you there was a new page in the beginning, in the middle of all of that. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, nope, you're doing a good job. Okay, thanks. However, well, okay. <laughs> you know how I am. I, I do know how you. I know how like, you okay, are. Wait a minute. I did have something. Okay. okay what did I you don't have? know. Okay. I don't okay. care enough to go to God to get revelation about the difference between a concubine or a wife. However, and, and because I don't care enough, I just, I just don't have the desire. I don't care. I just don't care. That's me. That's my problem. But in the past, I have felt that the difference between a concubine and a wife was that a man was filled to his wife where the concubines were temporal marriages only. So um, that's 
something that I got a long time ago. I never asked for confirmation of that. I I just, I know God, I think, I believe God was trying to give me that. And maybe I should care. I probably should care, but I just don't, I don't care. I, I don't know, because I'm not interested in temple wives. You know, the ceiling, according to what God showed me, the ceiling is the most important part. And the reason why God allows plural celestial marriage. So, you know, taking concubines that are just going to be temple wives that aren't sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, like I just, I don't know. So, but that's what I believe. Not what I know, just what I believe. The difference between a concubine and a wife is that one is sealed and the other one is temporal. So, there you go. That was pretty good timing. We were just having a fit. Now we decided not to have a fit. So that was pretty good timing. But now I have an Arius in my lap. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he can't hear you on you know how he kicked. You know how he woke me up today? He kicked you because you said that almost. He put his heel in the back of Mom's my phone. neck, and then he wiggled his foot back and forth, giggling. <laughs> like what are you doing? Are you a wiggly little thing? He's eating a peanut butter and jelly so sandwich, and he is just so proud of it. He shows me how cool he is with his little quarter of a sandwich. Hey, hey, Emily, <laughs> we're not being ridiculous. I'm on the radio show. No, you can't. Nobody the, can. The radio show is a family affair. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, all right, let's see if I can get through some more of this. However, in some instances, foreign women were brought in as wives to build up the kingdom of Israel. For example, when the tribe of ben- Benjamin began to diminish in size, the other tribes went over to the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. Gilead? Yes, Jabesh Gilead and took 400 young virgins that had known no man by lying with any male, and they brought them unto camp. That's in Judges chapter 21, verse 12. Thus, by polygamy, they were able to again build up that tribe so that a tribe be not destroyed out of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin continued to use these foreign women to build up their tribe and also went over to the vineyards of Shiloh, Shiloh and captured more wives in Judges chapter 21, verses 20 through 21. Martin Luther accepted polygamy as a natural state of affairs and did not condemn it as a matter of lust, but rather a common result of practicality. In Luther's Table Talk, page 304, quote, the polygamy of patriarchs, Gideon, David, Solomon, etc., was a matter of necessity, not of libertinism. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received from God the promise that he would multiply their seed as stars of heaven or the sands of the sea. The necessity of consanguinity was this, that when a man was elected judge or king, all his poor female relations crowded about him, and he had to take them as wives or concubines. It was a burdensome imposition rather than agreeable relaxation. Solomon's wives, most of them, were probably no more to him than my nieces, Magdalenian, or Magdalene, sorry, and Elizabeth are to me, who have remained under my roof versions as when they came here. That's 
end quote, from Luther's Table Talk, page 304. The history of Solomon ends in sadness because of the poor management of his family. But there is no reason to condemn the practice of polygamy because one man failed to properly conduct himself in it. Any good thing can be turned into bad use. Who would deprive mankind of the use of fire because some men have burned to death, have been burned to death? Neither can we legislate against polygamy or marriage because some men commit adultery. Right, that's whether or not it's polygamy or if it's monogamy. Um, either way, there's bad in everything. It depends on you know, the people. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Like Nobody ever says that monogamy should be outlawed because a man was extremely abusive in a monogamous relationship. But they want to take people, bad actors like Warren Jeffs, and say, oh, look how horrible he was. Polygamy is an evil thing. And, and like, you know, and they, they want to completely condemn it. And the reason they want to con- completely condemn it is because Satan wants them to condemn it because the feelings are the most, one of the most important things. No man and no woman can be exalted without being sealed to each other by the Holy Spirit of promise. And when there are many more elect females than there are males, God allows plural celestial marriage. And it would be the same thing if there were more uh, males that were righteous than there were females. Because in order for the highest blessings to be received, a man and a woman must be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And that, um, and I've talked about what the intelligence is before and how, you know, the masculine and the feminine, um, when they become self-aware, they separate and become a male and a female spirit, and there's two. Um, and they have to regain that, uh, that feeling that they had before they became spirit uh, in order to attain back unto eternal life, which the intelligence had... Um, eternal life but in order for it to grow and become self-aware they had to separate so anyway that's and that's the other thing too when it talks about being one with your wife or your husband that's the sealing ordinances you don't become one with somebody just because you have sex with them or become one because you live with them or you're married to them the, the oneness comes through the sealing ordinance not through your desire to be one with your 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 spouse without being married, uh, like without being filled properly. So, anyway, oh. go ahead, Kim. Okay. Well, let me finish. I only have like a page and a half, <laughs> according to these little tiny pages that we're reading. Many men are inclined to order. Uh, inclined to acknowledge that the principle of polygamy is a God-given right, but not for themselves. (laughs) Hence, many refuse to live it, while a few others may wrongly multiply wives to themselves. Faithfulness and obedience are essential for the man who accepts it, or he may fail, as did Solomon. It has been said that the Old Testament tells of an age of darkness, savagery, and ignorance. But if anyone will take the time to read about the magnificence and grandeur of Solomon's temple and compare it to the structures of our day, he will note that it was a masterpiece of intelligence construction, not to mention its beauty, 
and richness. But the spiritual impact upon the building was as rich as the furnishings. And this may be quickly observed by anyone reading the 22nd chapter of First Chronicles and the 3rd and 4th chapters of 11th Chronicles. The exceedingly rich and wise Queen of Sheba correctly said that the half has not been told. Even the Savior spoke of Solomon in all his glory. It does not take much reading to learn how prophets and seers were constant, con- constantly giving the word of the Lord to these polygamists. God often appeared to these men which clearly indicates his divine approval of their calling, their lifestyle, and their polygamy. In uh, the kingdom of Israel, I'm sorry, the kingdom of Israel lasted 40 years under Saul, 40 years under David, and 40 more years under Solomon. These three polygamists during the hundred, that 120 years raised Israel to its greatest peak of glory. Let, that, let the reader look back upon the life and labors of Solomon with particular interest, although he sinned because his heart was turned away to heathen rituals, we must consider the rest of his life and works. Solomon's throne was established by the Lord forever. The dedication of his temple was acknowledged by the Lord. It was built according to the revelations of God and became the wonder of the world. God blessed Solomon's kingdoms with riches and peace unparalleled in history. God gave him wisdom, which was famed throughout all nations. And he appeared to Solomon in dreams and spoke to him personally, yet he was not condemned for his polygamy. And now we're on page 143, chapter 14, Prophets, Priests, and Kings. Okay. Um, I don't think anybody's in the studio. Did he say anything else in the chat room? Um, soundboard boy. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm here now. Hello. I'm a ghost. Um, I just reloaded the thing. Um, he hasn't said anything else. Okay. Well, thanks for your commentary and for your listening and questions. That's or your uh, input. That's great. We like to hear from people. You know, and yeah. I'm grateful that you came on and used the chat room. Like, um, wait a minute. I just need to say you're super quiet, and I don't know what you're saying. Oh, sorry. My boom. I. My mic boom was up. Anyway, I I just was uh, thanking him for coming in the chat room. Like, a lot of people want to comment on the Facebook. Well, um, and I would love to be able to respond to everybody that comments in Facebook and in Messenger. But, like, okay, so when I get home, I'm exhausted, and I try to respond as I'm trying not to fall asleep. And in the, in the, like, when I wake up, like, I'm trying to get ready and trying to get the radio show done, and I don't have time to respond then either. And a lot of these questions I, I try to address, but, like, I just, and I don't use the computer. I use my cell phone. So that makes it a little more difficult. I hate computers. <laughs> Anyway, but so um, when people ask me questions through the phone line or through the chat room, it actually, um, you know, I, it's easier for me just to respond. So, like, a lot of times I'll even just make a video but uh, to respond instead of trying to type it all out. But, um, you know, if I'm, like, covered in coal dust, which happens every day, 
and I'm exhausted and falling asleep, I'm not probably not going to make a video. And if I'm trying to get ready and I'm not dressed yet and I'm trying to get the radio show all done, I'm probably not going to make a video then either. So I don't know. It's just uh, I, I'm really grateful when people use the, uh, the tools uh, like the chat room and the phone line to actually call in and give their statements. Because, like, I don't know all things, of course. I've been trying to study, you know, I study and I study, but, like, of course, I've, I've forgotten, you know, a lot of what I've read. And every once in a while, like, I bring the memory back, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I read that about, I read, you know, about that once or whatever. But, um, you know, I like to hear what other people have to say about these things, you know, because I think it should be a learning, like, as we come together and we seek for truth, we can talk about our thoughts and work things out together as a people and not just, you know, me telling everybody what to think. Because I do know some things, you know, God has given me a lot, but I don't know it all. So that's why I'm always asking what my wife's opinion is, too because she looks at things in a different way than I do, and I like to hear her thoughts. So, are you there, Kim? Aw, that's so sweet. I know you do, <laughs> but that's also because you know that I am not um, of a different fold or I am not trying to, like, make you um, do unrighteous things or... Yeah, well, some people, another direction. <laughs> actually, Kim has been hearing me vent to her about, I think it was about four or five different women in my LDS last day's prophecy and gospel discussions group that were freaking out about polygamy. And, like, they're like, why aren't you being fair? And, uh, you know, but then they were, like, also saying, I, you're a tickle I was talking like, about polygamy. I was, and I'm like... <laughs> I was like, do they know that you're not a polygamist? <laughs> well, they think do they they're know like, that you're not sicko. trying to you be a polygamist. You just want to have God-sanctioned sex <laughs> and like attributing all kinds of evil thoughts to me, and they don't even know me, you know. And like they were getting mad because I ca- I started kicking them out of the group and banning them, and they're like, oh, how dare you, like. You know, you're breaking the rules that you set. And I was like, you're harassing me because I'm talking about biblical polygamy. I'm sorry that you don't like the scriptures, but me talking about it doesn't mean I'm an evil, horrible person. You know, and I'm pretty sure they weren't all millennials, but they may as well have been. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway... All right, well, uh, if we don't have anything else, I guess we can talk about the horrible things that happened yesterday. Since <laughs> I did talk about it a little bit on Facebook. So you our did? dog. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Right. So oh, yeah, our I did dog, see it on there. So, yeah. Lucy Bell was named after our daughter who died last year, and she was born on the same day as our daughter, who died, and she got off her harness yesterday. And a five-point harness. She got out of yeah. a harness that was not meant for a dog to get out of. 
but somehow, yep. miraculously, she did it. And she got hit by a car, and we got over there to her right after it happened. And we were headed I, over to her when it happened. Yeah, we were trying we to get over down. there to get her. Yep. But they didn't even stop, and somebody else chased them down and whatever. But anyway, she was she was laying there in the road, and when I came up, you could see that she was happy that I was next to her. Yeah, and yeah. I was able to put her in the back of the car and bring her over to the family, and we all said goodbye to her as she died. So, yep. um, a friend of our family also died yesterday, right before that of undiagnosed liver cancer. Mm-hmm. And when I got home last night, one of our goats had hung himself on our fence. So we had three deaths in 12 hours. So, yeah. I don't know. I feel like Melvin w- wanted to die the way he was acting yesterday. Yeah. So I have very useful, good, good advice. Two things you are in total control of in life are, number one, your attitude, and number two, your effort. I feel like that is very wisdomful. (laughs) Wisdomful? Yes, it's a new word. My wife, (laughs) with the wisdom of Sullivan... (laughs) <laughs> or Shlomo Because um, his name was Shlomo I mean we should just call him By his true name Shlomo I think it's the most awesome name in the Bible <laughs> yep. I'm actually I, I am trying to not be So I'm I'm usually very like I don't know Do you think I'm controlling I don't know if it's controlling would be the word But usually I very, I'm a fixer Like I'm always trying to fix everything Before it happens or just like make sure that everything runs smoothly. And so when things happen that is completely out of my control, like when I am literally, you know, yards from my dog being hit, trying to get over there to get her so that she gets in our car instead of get run over by a car because she doesn't know any better. So like I, there was nothing else I could have done to control that situation. She was in a five point harness. She it was, it has two different parts that you hook onto the chain, which were hooked there because it wasn't yep. done by somebody else. It wasn't done by a child. I was the one there who hooked her to the thing while we were trying to bring her out back. She was she was completely secure the way she was supposed to be. Somehow, she was able to get out of that, which is still, like, had to be some kind of Houdini move on her part to Either get out of it. somebody let her out of it. Yeah, or somebody unhooked her. I don't know. So, anyways... So that, like, there was nothing in that. I went over it in my head, like, probably a million times. There's nothing that I could have done to fix that. There there was, like, all the preventable things for it I tried to prevent. And we prevented it by doing the things that you're supposed to do in order to make sure that your animals are safe. The um, As far as the other goat, goats are very social creatures. That goat was in a field with seven other goats. Um, two other babies, two moms, well, another at, uh, male. I'm sorry, what? He was at, He was acting weird last night. He was standing by the fence and staring at the fence that yep. I found him at this morning, but he wasn't touching it. 
And, nope. like, I walked over to him, and I petted him, and he didn't even move or anything. He just stared at the fence. And, yep. and Olivia, Lydia did, too. Yep. And she said, I think he's sick. And yep. I felt like he was sad. He seemed sad. And um, his mom wasn't paying attention to him anymore. He was 20 years ago, and he's like a mama's boy, you yeah, know, like a hardcore boy. mama's boy. And, mm-hmm. like, now she has a new baby, and she's kind of a mean goat. <laughs> and she wasn't yeah. paying attention to him anymore. And I feel like he did what he did because he wanted to die. I I know that's weird, you know, mm-hmm. but that's – it just – Well, the other know. goats also, those the boys, the twins, they're always with each other. Like, they're two peas in a pod. Yeah. Um, and their mom still pays attention to them. In fact, she she is about to give birth, and both of her twins from last year are in the pen with her right now. Oh yeah, and they always escape. <laughs> yeah, they always escape the field, and they go and they hang out next to the pen, and they uh-huh. will not leave there. And we finally let them in the pen with the mom, and they're all happy and all together as a a goat family now. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. But the other goat, um, Marie, is not like that. And the other two boys uh, are males that we're not sure what we're doing with either one of them yet. Um, but those two males, they don't pay attention to the boys, the little bullies. They're always trying to get on all the girls. So, um, Well, they're adults. Yeah. So he didn't really have uh, camaraderie with anybody. He was well, a, and he an was outlier. also by himself all the time. Like, he wasn't, he mm-hmm. wouldn't, like, hang out with the, the rest of them, you know. And, like, yeah. his mom wouldn't pay attention to him. Mm-hmm. And, like, yesterday, I mean, like, I was petting him. He didn't even hardly respond. He was just staring at that fence. And uh-huh. then when I got home this morning, he was dead. He hung himself on the fence. Yep. So, and we don't eat strangled animals because nope. that is against Torah law. So we're not going to eat him. And like, I like goats, but we're raising these goats for meat on the hoof. And when we get a large enough herd, we'll start selling them. But I don't think I'll ever eat them uh, unless I have to. You know, I I don't hunt either. I I don't like killing things. I have I, you know, but I don't I don't like it at all. Oh, I don't mind eating them, but I don't like. So, um, oh, we did eat that lamb for Passover. That wasn't strangled. What? Yeah, it wasn't strangled. Hold on, empty coming up. Yeah, and, like, so one of the ways the Jews uh, kill their animals, um, I think it's very humane. So what we do is we take a very, very sharp knife, and we pull the vein out that goes up into the neck, the carotid artery, and we just make a little cut. And then we hold it as it bleeds out. And it's not very painful. And the animals 
when we do that, they don't struggle. They are being held and they go to sleep. And then after they have died, then we finish draining their blood and we do what we need to do to prepare them, you know, for the Passover sacrifice, which, yeah, we have done Passover sacrifices. And um, when you actually go through the experience of sacrificing the lamb, it makes the atonement so much more powerful. Um, just to have that that physical reminder of the pure, innocent animal, you know. But Jesus wasn't an animal. He did it willingly and intentionally, and he did it for us. And so, um, but I don't like it. I don't like doing the Passover sacrifice. I don't like killing animals at all, ever. So I don't even go fishing. <laughs> I kill the animals. Yeah, I know. You don't even like to kill flies. And when we have a spider in our house, I'm like, oh, I'll kill it. And he's like, no, let's let it outside. And I'm like, it's just going to go have babies, and then they're going to come inside. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a rough life if you live with somebody who doesn't like to kill things. <sighs> yeah. Oh, all right. Well, I guess we should just end the program. Um, okay, you can sounds good. The music. <laughs> I actually okay. do have to get out of the truck so I can uh, do the thing that I have to do to get loaded. So I'll okay, mute myself. Call me later. So I'm okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back on tomorrow with the next program, which is Chapter 14. Hello. That yeah. sounded like a question. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's the next chapter? I can't remember. Oh, the next chapter is Chapter 14, Prophets, Priests, and Kings, on page 143. Okay. And I'll try to get that prepared so we can do it tomorrow. So, all right. Well, excuse Sounds me. Amazing. Thank you, everyone. For okay. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.